Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Hello, and welcome to another Littler Podcast. My name is Marissa Dragu, and I'm an attorney with our Littler Legal Learning Group. Today, I am talking to Peter Pettish, a Littler shareholder out of our Washington, D.C. office, and Corinne Jackson, Knowledge Management Counsel in Littler's downtown Los Angeles office. And today, we are discussing the interplay of telework arrangements and the ADA, along with other non-discrimination laws. Thank you both so much for joining me today, Peter and Corinne. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Corinne, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about this issue? So, we realize that companies out there may be facing many requests from their employees to work from home, and maybe uh, they're feeling the pressure to do so as more and more companies kind of go down this road. But, of course, there are a number of factors that would need to be considered before either granting or denying any such request, including, of course, the company's traditional limitations on requests to telecommute at all, right? So how does this apply in the context of accommodation requests under the ADA and similar state law protections? Well, that's a very good question, Marissa. Um, I think that, you know, a request to telecommute from an employee with a disability, for example, really needs to be analyzed under traditional disability accommodation framework. So, you know, your, um, the ADA and related state laws. So employers need to determine, and oftentimes with the help of counsel or HR, whether a request to telecommute is reasonable under the circumstances when they're looking at that, again, through the lens of a disabled employee. I mean, other considerations, including whether a policy against tele- blanket policy against telecommuting may have a disproportionate impact on a particular group of employees, or whether the employee or the employer will, will be positively or negatively impacted if the employee is permitted to commute, are also things that an employer is probably going to weigh. I think that mostly what we're, we are focusing on today is the interaction of the ADA and other non-discrimination laws with telecommuting requests. And so, for example, just looking at the ADA, you know, telecommuting may be requested by employees as an accommodation for a temporary or longer-term medical condition or disability. There are conditions as diverse as kind of mobility impairments or immune disorders, anxiety disorders, and others that may prompt employees to request telecommute. Employees with conditions that rise to the level of disabilities do have a right to a reasonable accommodation. Because of that, that's when the employer needs to decide, is telecommuting reasonable under these circumstances as an accommodation, which is something I think we're going to get into a bit more later. And just to add to that, um, sometimes as part of the accommodation process, the employer needs to bend the rules a little bit on an accommodation. For example, let's say the employer has a rule, nobody telecommutes. Well, you need to maybe reconsider that and see if telecommuting might be reasonable in that particular situation. Having said that, even though you may need to bend the rules a little bit, you don't need to abandon essential functions of the job in order to make an accommodation. That's a bedrock principle. And let's take an example. Let's say you have a rule on telecommuting that employees are eligible to telecommute if they have no prior warnings and if they have a year of service under their belt. Well, 
let's take a look at that year of service under their belt. There may be a valid reason to do that, to acclimate an employee to the workplace. But let's say somebody requests the accommodation 10 months into their work. I think that might be a situation where you need to consider bending the rules rather than rigidly saying, no, you didn't complete your 12 months of service yet. Yeah, all great points. Thank you both. And and Peter, kind of building on that, and Corinne had mentioned that employees with conditions that rise to the level of disabilities have a right to a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. So if an employee requests a leave of absence or time off due to a disability, and you've already talked about, you know, kind of being flexible here, but can mm-hmm. an employer propose and be flexible the other way that the employee actually telecommute rather than taking the time off? The answer to that is possibly. It's not always the accommodation that the employee desires. It's a reasonable accommodation, and that's arrived at between the employer and the employee. Now, this all depends also on whether the Family and Medical Leave Act is involved. Under the Family and Medical Leave Act, an employee has a right to take that leave. So assuming that that is not involved, In this situation, it could be that the employer takes the position that, well, you can work, but you might have uh, difficulty getting into the office or the workplace, and your job can be done from home. And the employer can certainly, in some instances, take that position. But the employee's desired accommodation is certainly something that needs to be taken into account. Usually, employees will only want to take leave as a reasonable accommodation if they can, for a period of time, no longer perform the essential functions of their job. And uh, it, it's kind of a, a, a stopgap until they get better and are able to return to work. Yeah. And, and that's a great segue to what I want to get into next, which is this concept of the essential job functions, right, which frequently ties into telecommuting cases. Um, so, Corinne, the essential functions of a job or the fundamental duties of employment positions, which it is sometimes referred to as, must first be identified in order to determine whether an individual with a disability is qualified for the position and how to best accommodate that individual. So, what types of factors would you say are considered uh, to determine if a particular job job function is essential? Well, so, Marissa, I mean, obviously that is going to depend a lot on the job in question, the circumstances in question, but just looking at, you know, how, um, how the EEOC and others have interpreted the ADA in the past, they've looked at things like, you know, whether the employee, employer actually requires employees in the position to perform the functions that the employer is asserting are essential now, right? So, if you cannot type because you're, you know, something's happened to your hand, but you have a lot of other duties, and it's not, and that typing has never been considered essential for anyone in your same job position, but suddenly it's become essential for you. That would that would raise a problem, or you know, whether removing the function would fundamentally alter the position itself. So. You'll see that in, in situations maybe with, you know, in a, a factory setting or something where someone needs to lift something and that's that's the job. Or and I, I, I think I even read about a case where there was a driver who went legally blind. And I, I don't think he was blind and that he couldn't see anything, but he was legally blind and and was looking for an accommodation for that, but his job was driving and that, that just that goes kind of to the you know, the essential description of the job. And there are a number of, of, of other related factors, but 
under kind of the essential job function principle, an example would be answering the telephone may not be an essential function for a file clerk in every office of an employer of every size. But let's imagine it's one employer, tiny office, and everyone, every clerk has to do a lot of different tasks, including answer the phone. That, in that ex example, it would be an essential job function, which is one of the reasons that it's very hard to you know, use a blanket term and say, well, this has been found to be an essential job function before for a similar job. It's definitely an essential job function here. It's really going to depend on case by case. Do you agree, Peter? I absolutely agree. And in fact, in more and more cases, what's essential to a job has become a contested issue of fact, sometimes foreclosing summary judgment in, uh, in failure to accommodate cases or in general ADA discrimination cases. Really, it's where the rubber meets the road. What has to get done with that job? And it's sometimes you have to abandon traditional views of how the job has traditionally been done, although it's relevant. Uh, and, and another factor could be how much time do people spend doing a task? But that said, there are exceptions to that too, right? You have the example of a police officer who may not necessarily uh, always have to be in hot pursuit of a suspect, but sometimes they do have to do that. And when they do, it's essential. That's great. Thanks so much, um, Peter. And, and I want to kind of switch gears here to an EEOC uh, versus Ford Motor Company case that was decided by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth, Sixth Circuit, where they initially concluded that allowing a problem solver in a fast-moving team environment to telecommute could be a legally required reasonable accommodation. And of course, the decision was eventually overturned. So can you tell us a little bit about how traditional assumptions on the need to be physically present in the workplace kind of fell by the wayside in the initial Ford ruling? Sure, initially, and the case went back and forth because uh, at the first instance, the district court granted summary judgment for the employer saying being there is essential. But then when it went on appeal for the first time, the court challenged that assumption and said, let's step back for a second. Um, and as I said before, it's what has to get done and not necessarily how it gets done. And it challenged the assumption that the workplace has to be the brick and mortar physical work site. Um, and, and it's not synonymous with working necessarily, given the advances of technology. Uh, and that's something that always has to be considered in reasonable accommodations. It's, it's not one-stop shopping. It's an evolving process. And things can change over time. The essential functions can change. Person's condition can change. And also technology. In this case, the court fixated a little bit on technological advancements that might have enabled the person to do some of the problem solving from a remote location rather than face-to-face -face with the other problem solvers. Um, there were also issues with when the person would be available to work with the other problem solvers. I think it was essential that folks work together during you know a set amount of working hours when everyone's present. But the court sent it back at that point and said, um, not necessarily. Uh, 
that telecommuting wasn't a reasonable accommodation and it wasn't necessarily antithetical to interacting regularly with other team members as long as that employee could be available during those core business hours. But then things changed when the court got it again. Yeah, and and so you know when when the court got it again, and and they basically say regular in-person attendance is an essential function and a prerequisite to the essential functions of of most jobs, especially those that are interactive. Do you think that this meant that telework could never be a reasonable accommodation? No, the court never said never in that. Um, it did take a look at this job and the undisputed facts on what this job entailed, and said. Look, this is another example of when being there in person in an interactive job of this nature is essential to the job. And in many cases, the court observed, it is essential to a lot of jobs, but the court never said that telecommuting could never be a reasonable accommodation. But it did embrace a lot of the traditional views that courts had embraced over the years on telecommuting as a reasonable accommodation. Courts have been rather tough on telecommuting accommodations. There have been exceptions out there, and and there are common sense exceptions in the real world to it. But uh, in a lot of cases, courts have taken a stern view on telecommuting as a reasonable accommodation. Thanks for that, Peter. Um, So, Corinne, I want to talk a little bit about caregivers as we close out our podcast today. So, we understand that there is this general principle that caregivers are not entitled to ADA accommodations. Um, under under federal law, and some state courts, such as California, have held under their broader statutes that persons such as caregivers may be entitled to a reasonable accommodation under the law. In addition to this, the EEOC enforcement guidance on caregivers issued in 2007 explained the circumstances under which discrimination against workers with caregiver or family responsibilities could constitute discrimination prohibited by by various federal laws, uh, including, of course, Title VII. And since then, family responsibilities discrimination has come to be defined as follows. It would be when, and this is a quote, an employee suffers an adverse employment action based on unexamined biases about how workers with family caregiving responsibilities will or should act without regard to the worker's actual performance or preferences, end quote. So in the context of telecommuting, what are some of the potential legal implications if, for example, an employer permits other employees to telecommute uh, but refuses to grant a pregnant employee's request to telecommute because, you know, she'll be leaving on maternity leave anyway? That's a good question. Um, I, th- as far as that specific narrow question that you asked at the end, you know, such a decision would likely and definitely could be subject to challenge on the grounds that the employer's decision was based on that employee's family or caregiving responsibilities, right? Because the the employer is deciding to not grant a request because, oh, they're going to have a maternity leave anyway. So, which kind of gets to the core of how telecommuting can interact with family responsibilities discrimination claims because as you said in the beginning, absent a a category protected by Title VII or other federal or state law, 
actions taken against workers with caregiver or family responsibilities may not constitute discrimination, which means, for example, refusing to approve a telecommuting arrangement because of an employee's poor work performance. That would be fine, rather than making assumptions or stereotypes born out of that employee's status as a caregiver, right? So this employee recently became a parent or this employee is, is taking care of you know, a disabled family member. And accordingly, they probably are going to be spending their time focused on caregiving and not focused on the work. So employers need to be really careful about why the decision to deny a telecommuting request in, in that um, example, why, what's supporting that? Is, is it performance? Is it going back to essential job functions? Or are they really focusing on their status as caregivers? Because if so, they open themselves up to potential claims. Do you have thoughts on that, Peter? Yeah, if you're letting other people telecommute um, under a telecommuting policy and you deny it to somebody else, a caregiver, uh, someone who's associated with an individual with a disability, for example, then it becomes not a failure to accommodate issue, but it becomes a straight discrimination issue. And the ADA bars straightforward discrimination against caregivers. So again, if Corinne here gets to telecommute, but I am taking care of uh, a child with a disability and you deny it to me because of the assumption that, oh, you're, you're just going to focus on your caregiving and not doing your job, that might uh, form a case of straightforward uh, associational discrimination. Yeah, it's so interesting. Thank you both for, for your thoughts on that. Any final thoughts by either one of you on telework arrangements um, along with the ADA and other non-discrimination laws? Well, I would say with some exceptions, of course. I mean, you have the example of a of a an intensive care nurse who actually needs to be there with the patients, right? But I would say never say never and go back, take yeah. a structured approach, uh, think creatively outside of traditional norms of how the job has typically been done. As Corinne said at the very, very beginning, take a structured approach, follow an ADA checklist, don't treat telecommuting any differently from any other kind of accommodation request. And, and remember, accommodations entail some trial and error. And going back to the Ford case, uh, the employer in that case let the employee try telecommuting for a period of time. So there was some trial and error involved. And, and that's really an important facet of the accommodation process. Give it a whirl, see if it works. Um, and, and a lot of times accommodations need to be reevaluated on an ongoing basis. Thanks so much for, for your time today, Peter and Corinne, and thank you so much to all of our listeners. And for any additional information on telework arrangements, the ADA, non-discrimination laws, and of course, any other labor and employment laws, please visit us at littler.com. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. 
to discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice. Visit littler.com slash podcasts.